If you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the sixth chapter. We return again to the passage in Hebrews where we have been. If you join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, and we will begin reading once more at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them the end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, God, that as we approach your word, we would be cautious of our own assumptions, that we would be open to hear your truth, and that you would teach us, God, that all things that we do have no saving faith or merit in their own but that all things that we do have saving faith because you've given it. God, help us to understand that we are yours entirely and completely. And we pray, God, that Christ would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, we're focusing this morning on verse 18. I just want to read the last portion of this again before we go on. We have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And we spoke last week about the strong consolation that's ours in Christ. And I want to kind of draw our attention back to a piece of what I spoke of last week which is the idea of Christ as refuge. And specifically, Christ as refuge as foreshadowed in the Old Testament cities of refuge. We're going to come back to that and speak about that just a little bit. But before we can begin with that, we have to recognize the truth that we who who are found in Christ have taken God at his word and fled for refuge to Christ, who is our only hope. Christ alone is the true need of our wretched souls. And to stand outside of Christ is to call God a liar, either as to your need for a Savior, or to call Him a liar as to His willingness to forgive you your sin on the ground of His own promise and condition. This is not a small thing. And and it's important that we understand that whenever anybody contends that there is some other path by which somebody can come to God, some other path by which they can enter into heaven and be found at peace with God, What they're doing is calling God a liar. They're contending that they're better than than God says they are, or they're contending that God is not faithful, that there has to be some other way because God will not keep his word. If we understand that Christ is the only hope that is, and that faith in Christ alone is all there is, then that removes from the table every other possibility of hope. Now, this is an issue that we have to stand firm on because it's an issue that is sliding into oblivion in much of what calls itself the church in the United States. There is too much pressure to be inclusive, too much pressure to not offend anybody, too much pressure to just get along, too much pressure to just pretend like anybody who says they're a Christian in whatever means it looks like to them is acceptable in the eyes of God. It's not for me to judge, it's not for you to judge, but it is for us to declare plainly what the Scripture has said, which is Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And we learn this by taking the Scripture alone as our authority. 
We, we, we cling to this because nothing else stands. And we cling to this because to do anything else is to say that God is not to be trusted. To do anything else is to say that God is false to his word, that God is false to his character, that God is false to who he says he is. For us as followers of Christ, we have to recognize that to fly to Christ is to be justified. And to hide the perfect righteousness of Christ as our covering is to have ourselves satisfied in him and in him alone. And we cannot allow anything else to be brought in as a part of that mix. It is Christ. It is Christ. It is Christ. Amen? Amen. Dr. Doddridge said on his dying bed, I have no hope in what I have been or what I have done, yet I am full of this confidence. There is a hope set before me. I have fled. I still fly for refuge to that hope. In him I trust. In him I have strong consolation and has surely be accepted in this beloved of my soul. There is the ground of peace. It's not in anything else that he's done, not in anything else that we've done. It is in Christ and in Christ alone. And if we are going to be found in that refuge, we are fleeing from the wrath to come. So what the writer of Hebrews gives to us here is this idea that we have fled from something. And so what I want to do is I want to approach this idea from flying from something and flying to something, because that's really what we see here. So let's begin at the beginning and understand that we are flying from God's wrath. And it begins by understanding that we are guilty. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 tells us that for all who sin, there is a wage, something that they have earned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to recognize that this is an all-inclusive reality. And no matter how nice somebody is, or no matter how spiritual somebody is, or no matter how friendly somebody is, or no matter how religious somebody is, or no matter how anything else somebody is, apart from Christ, they are guilty and deserving of death. In fact, we could just say that we are all guilty and deserving of death and not make the exclusion apart from Christ because Christ delivers us from that guilt. But we are absolutely guilty, every single one of us. There are no exceptions. It includes every man, woman, and child ever born or that ever will be born. None are righteous. None are innocent. There is no immaculate conception. There never has been any immaculate conception. There is nobody who has ever been born free from the taint of original sin. It does not exist. It is a made-up fallacy to support made-up heresy. And we need to recognize the truth that original sin stains all of us. We are all guilty with the guilt that our father Adam endued to us. We are all guilty with that sin. And in the end, we are all guilty not only by the sin of original sin, but also by the stain of our own active, delighted participation in sin. Because we are all, by nature, willing rebels. Every last one of us has rebelled against and continues to rebel against the authority of our God. Make no mistake, sin is not just about violating God's law. It is violating God's law. But that's not the heart of it. The heart of sin is a violation of God's authority, his right to tell you what you are and are not to do. Because at the very core of it, all sin is an attempt to wrest God from his throne and put ourselves and our own desires into his place. We cannot lose sight of this. When somebody says, oh, there has to be some other way, what are they saying to you? No, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to do what I want to do. I'm the one who gets to decide how I'm going to live. I'm the one who gets to decide how I'm going to be saved. I'm the one that gets to make that choice. You're not. God alone has that authority. And all sin is an active, willing rebellion against the authority of God. And since we are all guilty of this, we are all deserving of wrath. Period. And if we're going to fly to Christ, make no mistake, we are flying from God's wrath. 
The punishment that we deserve is the wrath of God, and that is spiritual death, dying forever with no end to the dying. Now just think about that for a moment. No matter how terribly somebody dies, no matter how long and protracted and painful it might be, there is always set in front of them the hope that this is going to stop. Even if they don't have any hope in Christ or hope in life, you'll find people who are dying miserably and dying terribly and dying painfully, thinking it can't, end, it can't go on forever, it has to end. I just, want, I just want it to stop. That hope sits in front of them, this life of pain and suffering and misery. Do you recognize what a mercy it was that God removed from the grasp of man the tree of life? Can you imagine living in this world without any hope of death? without any hope of getting out, without any hope of things ending? Can you imagine living in this world with with only the things of this world enduring on? What What a horrible place that would be. Far worse than it is now. People say they want to live forever, and I promise you, you don't. I promise you, you do not want to live forever. You do not want to live a million years on this planet as it is. It's not It's not good. But eternal death. Beloved, understand this. When somebody enters into the wrath of God, there is stretching in front of them an eternity without any light of it ever ending. It is a forever thing. And it is a punishment and a suffering and a pain which goes on forever and forever. It is God's eternal judgment And there will never be any end to the agony. They will be forever and forever suffering the righteous judgment of God for their sin, for their rebellion, for their hatred of Him. They will be suffering what they have deserved, and they will be suffering it for all of eternity. And there is no hope of it ever ending. There is no way out. Purgatory is a lie. There is no middle place by which you can somehow make it right. The day by which you are given to set things right with God is this one. And whether you are here with me now or hearing me later, the day that you are given is this day in which you are hearing the word of God. And there is no other which is promised to you. And you are not even promised the completion of this one. What waits for you apart from the mercy that's given in Christ is wrath. It is not even conceivable to us how awful this is. But Paul, in Romans 9.22, talks about people who are apart from Christ being vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That means that they will be also given resurrection bodies that will never wear out and that will never die. But their resurrection bodies are fashioned in such a way that they will be able to endure for all of eternity the wrath of God without being consumed. It's a horrible thing to contemplate. And it's a horrible thing to consider. And yet it is important for us to recognize that it is real. Because it is precisely that from which we are fleeing. We are fleeing from the wrath of God. We are fleeing from the righteous wrath of God, which we in our souls know we deserve. Every last one of us, whether we want to admit it or not, we know we're guilty. It's why our constant conversation with people, and they begin to tell us how good they are, the only thing they want to do is point to people who are doing worse. They want to say, well, I'm not as bad as him. At least I'm not doing that. At least I'm not her. You can drag out a giant long list of people that you're better than. But here's the truth. The only one to which you will ever be compared is Jesus Christ. Amen. So how do you stack up against him? Are you better than Jesus? Are you half as good as Jesus? Are you a millionth as good as Jesus? Are you even playing the same game? No. No. A million times no. 
Beloved, we know this in our souls. And we know this in our bones. And every single person that you speak to, why do you think they get so angry when you speak to them about their need for a Savior? It's because their conscience within them is crying out against them and telling them they're guilty. And they don't like that thought. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't want to have any part of recognizing that guilt. And they certainly don't want to have anything to do with acknowledging the terror that waits for them one micron, millisecond after their last breath. Because that's all they have to look forward to. And there is no deliverance from it. For us, this should not only give us joy and hope that we have been called out, but it should also light a fire in us to share the gospel. Because we say we love these people. We say we care about them. We say they are important to us. We say they matter. And yet we are content for the sake of our own personal comfort for a moment to let things slide because we don't want them to be angry with us. Where's the love in that? Where's the compassion in that position? We need to recognize that we have flown from, salva- flown from wrath and found salvation. But we also must recognize that if they are to escape that punishment which they deserve, they also must fly. They must fly from that wrath. And they must fly from that wrath unto the only hope that there is. We must understand that this is a real terror. If there's any hope of escape, our presence of mind to recognize that this is not something to be complacent about cannot be set at ease. Does that make sense? Beloved, if we're not scared for them, how would we expect them to be scared? (laughs) If it doesn't matter to us, to to where we don't even really think it's an issue, eh, it's all right, don't worry about it. You'll be okay. If that's our perspective and that's our opinion, how can we expect them to, to recognize the truth with which we're speaking if it doesn't even matter to us? Look at me at Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 13 and following. People do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he who is the head, the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire, it shall devour the briars and the thorns, and kindle in the thickets of the forest, they shall mount up like rising smoke through the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The land is burned up. And the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. And every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh and Ephraim shall, Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. And together they shall be against Judah. But for all this, his anger is not turned away. But his hand is stretched out still. Now, I chose that passage because this is dealing with God's specific judgment against Israel for its corporate sins and its national fall. And as terrible as that sounds, twice in that passage, Isaiah says, for all this, God's judgment is not satisfied and his hand is stretched out still. In other words, he's still avenging. He's still pursuing. That is a temporal judgment that God says, I'm not going to relent until it is exhausted. What we're talking about this morning is eternal judgment. 
there needs to be some urgency in us. How many of you have ever had a point in your life where you've been literally scared of something? I mean, just had that flash of terror where I'm going to die or this is awful or whatever it might be. Can you relate to the emotion? That terror should be a constant part of our psyche. We need to be aware of the fact that death is hiding for these people that we love. And we need to be urgently concerned to see them at least hearing the truth over and over and over. If, if they're, if they're going to go to hell, Spurgeon said, let them go leaping over our bodies as we grasp them about the ankles. We don't want to just make it easy for them to go. We want to, we want to do everything in our power to prevent them. It's not ours to save them, but beloved, I just don't feel like there's any urgency in us. I don't feel like there's that much urgency in me. It's, it's not honoring to God for us to be complacent about the souls of men and women. We must take this seriously because God takes it seriously. And when, when a murderer was flying to the, to the city of refuge, do you think that he stopped along the way to gather lilies? Do you think that he sought out the bed, bed, best bed and breakfast so that he could make sure that he had a good breakfast in the morning? Do you think that he even paused to sleep? I would say if he slept at all, he fell by exhaustion and laid in the ditch and hoped that nobody saw him so that after an hour or two he could get up and run again. There was urgency in it. Why? Because the avenger of blood was pursuing him. And he knew it. And you know, if he didn't reach that city of refuge before the avenger caught him, he would die in the street. This is the picture. There should be some urgency in us. There should be some urgency in our pursuits. And we're also fleeing righteous judgment. We have to understand that we absolutely deserve God's wrath. And I can't state this strongly enough to, to make it sink in to, to myself so I'm not going to have any strong confidence that I can communicate it to anybody else. This sense of deserving what, what God has prescribed has to be given to us by God. We have to know this is righteous. God's not being a bully by exacting his wrath on people who have hated him and offended him. No matter what their excuse, no matter what their circumstances, no matter what logic they want to bring to bear, God's judgment is always righteous. Amen. And we have to know this, which means we have to be unapologetic about it. Yes, people are going to yell and scream at you. They're going to call you mean. They're going to call you all sorts of ugly things. They're going to say terrible, terrible things about you. But you cannot be apologetic for who God says he is. Period. It's God. He has the right to define himself according to what is real. And he has the right to tell us that we don't have that right. Not to define him and not to define ourselves. We do not have the right to redefine ourselves according to the whim of the moment. No matter what the government says. No matter what the social justice warriors want to pretend. That is not truth. It is not real. It is not given to us to redefine our reality according to what we want it to be. It is given to us to believe God and to take him at his word and to speak his word with clarity and conviction so that in all that we do and all that we say, at the very least, we are being truthful about who God is. Now, if we're flying from all of that, what are we flying to? Christ. We are flying to Jesus Christ as a refuge and a hope. The allusion is to the cities of refuge established for those guilty of manslaughter. And Thomas Manton points out that in this verse and in this idea, there is both a driving and a drawing force. Something drives us with a whip at our backs, and that something is the law. But equally true is the fact that something draws us ever on with urgent gentleness, and that something is the gospel. The law drives us out of ourselves. The gospel drives us home to God. And this is the nature of our flight. There is earnestness as we are seeking Christ, as we are running to Him, as we are being drawn towards Him because He is our home and He is our hope 
and he is beautiful to our sight. We love him, and we desire him, and we long for him above all other things. Whether or not we find all that we think we want, we know we want him. And if we have him, it will be enough. There is the matter of life and death. And there is a determined singularity in this flight. Um, there is no time to delay or dally or play with the optional exceptions, accessories. There's nothing else that will ever satisfy and nothing else that will ever cause us to, to seek after it. And there is an unwearied diligence. We run until we're safe. Until we get to the city center and cry for refuge, cry for sanctuary, cry for, for mercy and say, I'm guilty and I need mercy. Until we reach that point, we're not stopping. Spurgeon talks about his own salvation and how for two years he labored with God. And he was a young man at the time. He was 14 or 15 when God was really working on his soul. And he said that God daily plowed his back with a plow of ten shears. What was he talking about? The law of God. And every day, this young man who grew up in a Christian home to godly parents and honestly probably had never even stolen a piece of gum was convicted by the guilt of his own nature and convicted by the guilt of his own awareness of the sin that stained every aspect of his life. And he understood that everything that God said, thou shalt not do, he was a willing participant in. And the fact that he may not have actually done any of them physically yet was simply a matter of opportunity and not desire. Deal with that truth. Deal with it in your own heart. And recognize that that very thing describes all of us. We as followers of Christ must recognize that we are flying with earnest hearts towards him. Nothing else is enough. And there is a focused target. There is a destination, a relationship with Christ being found in Him. And our diligent pursuit of Him, that's the target. We're seeking after Him. Psalm 142, verse 5 says, I cried out to you, my Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Hmm. Who's our refuge? Christ. Psalm 18, 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Are we detecting a pattern here? We're seeking after Him. He is our hope. He is our refuge. He is the one who we desire. Now, I want to deal with these cities of refuge just a little bit for you. And I want to kind of unpack a couple of things because it's a pretty fascinating study. There were six cities of refuge, three on the east of the Jordan, three on the west. They were set in locations according to the command of God. And they were interspersed widely across the nation so that every one of them could always be reached. You think about relationships to Christ, God prepares a way by which all of us might come to Christ. God prepares a way by which every single one of the people that he is going to save will come to Christ. It is a foregone conclusion that God will save his own. And this is what is represented for us by the the cities of refuge. And without a doubt, there were more than enough of them to hold any and all that ever might need them. There was no danger of them becoming full. No danger of them becoming overcrowded. There was no danger of them becoming inaccessible because there was just no more room to shoehorn one other person in. They would never be unable to take somebody in. So also it is with Christ. No one who comes to him asking for mercy will ever be turned away. God promises that the cry for mercy is the one that he will hear. And so nobody who comes to Christ asking for mercy will ever be told no. There were spacious, well-maintained roads to these cities of refuge. It was the responsibility of the government to make sure that the roads that led to the cities of refuge were well-paved. So they did not hire them out to local contractors. (laughs) They made sure that there were no potholes. They made sure that there was nothing that would disrupt the flight of the guilty to get to the cities of refuge. Just consider in your own life how clearly and plainly God directed your steps to the day in which you came to know Christ. He never fails, and he never misses. 
Because it has been his intention from the beginning that you were his. He has always been drawing you. He has always been doing everything needful that those that are his own would come to the knowledge of Christ, that they would be saved by his grace. This is represented for us in the roads. Turn from your sin, fly to Christ, and beg for mercy. But these cities were also named by God, which is where it gets really fascinating. The first city was Kadesh, and Kadesh means holy. What is Jesus? He is the Holy One of God. Ephesians 4.24 tells us that we also are to be living holy lives because we have been saved for holiness. We're commanded, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says, God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Now, Shechem, the second city of refuge, means shoulder. Signifies Christ bearing the burdens of sin on himself. He bore our transgressions. He bore our iniquities. He bore the cross. But the cross itself was representative of our sin, which he was dying to pay for. All of this placed upon the shoulders of our sacrifice. The third city of refuge, Hebron, means fellowship. And Christ is the medium and the ground of fellowship between God and men between the whole body of believers. In Christ, we have become sons of God and members of one another. So Romans 12.5 tells us, we being many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25 warns us that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same love for one another. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8, for some instruction on how to put that to work in our lives. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8, Peter writes this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days... Let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is set against those who do evil. Beloved, hear me. Apart from our obligation to proclaim the truth of Christ to the lost and dying world, The number one priority for every single believer is the unity of the body in Christ in holiness. We are not permitted ever to divide the body against ourselves. We are not permitted ever to promote schism. We are not permitted ever to, to spread lies and gossip and rumors and deceit. We are not permitted ever to justify ourselves in in the defense of an indefensible position. Unity of the body is the highest priority. The unity of the body in holiness, let me be very specific. It is the highest priority given to us. And as followers of Christ, this is without exception. There is nobody untouchable. There is nobody who, if they are guilty of this sin, should not be called out for it. And we need to be very careful of ourselves and very attentive to ourselves to guard against the encroaching evil. But we also need to be very careful of ourselves and very intentional about the building together of relationships that would shield us from that evil. We have to be attentive to this. Because anything that you just let go, what happens to it? It comes undone. It just falls apart. Leave your house unpainted for five years. Go back and look at it. You won't like what you see. We have to maintain these relationships. We have to make sure that in Christ, we are being constantly bound together. We have to be attentive to that truth. It's something that God has given to us for our good and for our blessing. But it's also something that God has given to us because it speaks to the fellowship that we share in Christ. It speaks to the fellowship that we share with Christ. 
There is no division and no disunity in heaven. There is no division and no disunity among the people of God. And any time that division and disunity occurs, it is because of one thing and one thing only. Sin. And it must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with swiftly. As followers of Christ, this is incredibly important for us to understand. The fourth city of refuge, Bezer, means stronghold. And Christ is often described in this manner. He is our refuge, our fortress. He is our stronghold in our day of trouble. And if we are found in him, we are more secure than if we were in the strongest castle ever made. Christ is our refuge. He is our stronghold. He is the one to whom we fly. Psalm 61.3 says, You have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. The fifth city of refuge was Ramoth, which means exaltation. Jesus is the exalted Son of God. He is the Prince of Life. He is our King. And He deserves all of the honor which we can give Him. And it is irony of heavenly proportions that He added to that absolutely supreme honor by divesting himself of it. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5, Paul writes this concerning Christ. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is what Jesus did. He he heightened ultimate honor to make it ultimate honor squared. I don't know. You you make up your term. I I don't know what to use. Um, But he did it by divesting himself of the honor that he already possessed. Now, he did this because he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that doesn't mean that he was a seeker looking for something that wasn't his. That's not the the idea contained in the wording. The idea contained in the wording is that he did not consider it something to be clung to, held on to, risked. Oh no, if I I let go of this just a tiny little bit, I'm going to lose it. Equality with God could not be lost by him because it was his. It's a part of his nature. The glory that he laid aside, he could pick back up because it was his. Nobody else has any right to it. And the fullness of everything that God did in Christ is contingent upon this reality that Christ laid aside his glory. And because he did so, God gave him even more glory. Why? Because in his dying and in his paying for our price, what he did was bring into reality the manner by which we, fallen mankind, can know the redeeming love of God, which is the greatest, grandest, truest, most profound portion of God's love. Apart from redeeming love, God is far off and distant. Apart from redeeming love, God is nothing but wrath to us. He's somebody to be appeased, somebody to be held at a distance, somebody to make sure that we don't do anything to offend him because it will be very bad for us. But in redeeming love, we find a God who has done all that is needful to bring us into a relationship with him that goes far beyond servant. It goes far beyond friend. He calls us his children. He makes us family. He makes us family by his own intention and by his own design. He adopts us into his very own household and gives to us the full rights and privileges of his own son, Christ. Amen. This is what Christ has given to us. This is the majesty which is unpacked by Christ divesting himself of his glory. And, and it is 
insurmountably beautiful. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 22 as David, long before it occurred, struggled to express what God has done. 2 Samuel chapter 22, starting at verse 47. He says this, The Lord lives, and blessed be the rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. And therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forevermore. Now this is an interesting point because we know that Jesus Christ is the seed of David. We know that Jesus Christ is the king of which David is actually speaking. He had his own experience as David in his life and and David recognized the things that God had done, and this was the reason for David's praise. But God, being God, wrote the words in such a way that it also points to Christ. The anointed is Jesus, and God has been continually merciful to his anointed and continues to give to him that. And this promise, this powerful promise by which God says, I am exalting this one who is my anointed. Do you remember what I just said about God adopting us in his children? giving to us the full rights and privileges of his own family? If Jesus is the seed of David, whom God is exalting, do you not recognize that there is this promise here for you as well? These things are spoken of Christ and his work, but then they are given to us. They are shared with us because we are his full co-heirs. This gives us cause to understand the meaning for the last city of refuge. The last city of refuge is Golan, and it means exaltation. Exaltation is to lift Christ high. Exaltation is joy. It is the idea that because of everything that God has done for us and everything that God has done in us, He is our joy. He is our rejoicing. His gospel is a message of joy. And his kingdom is not only righteousness and peace, but it is also joy in the Holy Spirit. Psalm 5.11 says, Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, His anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Do you remember how David described it in Psalm 51? This is his psalm of repentance after his affair with Bathsheba was made known. When he had been restored, look at me at Psalm 51. And I just want you to catch the flavor of joy, even in this powerful psalm of repentance. We'll start at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Now this brings us back to the idea that if we're going to honor Christ and be faithful to everything that God tells us to do, then part of the responsibility that is placed upon us is the faithful proclamation of the things that God requires. God, you've saved me. You've forgiven me. You've drawn me into a relationship with you. You've given me forgiveness. You've given me joy now. And when you do this, when you give me that joy, when I know what I am, the immediate response is to begin to teach people who don't know what's actually available to them. 
The immediate response is to teach people who don't know what God actually says. Because, beloved, hear this. They're living lies. And they're drinking in lies. And they're drinking in false teaching. And they're believing all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the Scripture. And they're believing that their opinions and their ideas and their works and their selves are going to be enough on the Day of Judgment. And that Day of Judgment draws ever nearer. It draws ever closer. You are, right now, one day closer to the death of your life and the end of this world than you ever were. And every day that you live, you are one day closer. You are one day closer to the return of Christ. You are one day closer to the day of judgment when you will stand before him. And that is not only you. That is every other person alive on this rock. We are all one day closer to the end of it. And if that doesn't give us some urgency, we're not thinking about it right. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So as we get a hold of this joy and get a hold of this purpose and get a hold of this idea that God has saved us for His own pleasure and saved us and given to us a purpose and a meaning to share Christ with a lost and dying world, joy should be the byproduct of that. Your life is not empty. Your life is not meaningless. Your life has purpose. It has grandeur. It has scope. It has glory. And everything that you do, you do to the glory of God when you're living this life correctly. And as you do that, part of that is sharing Christ often. So I want to think just briefly this morning in closing about the idea of what flight actually looks like. Fly. Fly. This is not a a languorous stroll. Lester and I have started training again for our next trip to the canyon, and we've been walking, and we've not been walking terribly fast. Three miles an hour about. It's sort of a languorous stroll, but when you consider where we're going and what we're going to be doing, it's a head-down endurance kind of thing. (laughs) You just plod on. You just go and do what you're doing. It's not flight. Right? There's no real urgency about it. There's a desire, there's a need to do what we got to do. But it can't be described as flight. If you've ever seen me walk, you know I'm not flying. (laughs) But here's the truth of the matter. When we run to Christ, it has to be flight. It has to be urgent. It has to be a very real sense that we have to get there. We have to get there now. The careless sinner is already under the judgment of God. The axe is already about to fall. We have to know this. If you're unsure about your own soul, you have to know that for yourself. But after you've settled it with Christ and you know who you are in Christ, you have to know that for them as well. You have to know that for the people that God has placed in your life, that they may be the nicest people you've ever known, but the axe is hanging over their necks even now. And you should be urgently concerned about this. And you should be able to convey that urgency to them. Our repentance must be immediate and ongoing. We must be always flying to Christ. We must be constantly seeking hard after Him, that we might be very confident and not with arrogance, which presumes that we're just too good to go to hell. right? We're confident of Christ. We know that we belong to him. But we're not arrogantly assuming, well, you know, God, I got this. We're good. There's a balance there. This keeps us checking in. It keeps us touching base. It keeps us grounded. God, help me see what I really am. If you were to withhold your mercy from me for even a moment, help me understand what I would be. Help me understand, God, that the things that I don't do I don't do because your spirit restrains me. And help me know that when I do give in and do them, that you're teaching me how much more I need you. And let it always be my heart to draw me back to you. Let it always be my desire to be drawn closer and closer into fellowship and relationship and a true faithful obedience to you. Let it always be my desire that you, God, are the heart of my everything. Joy is the promise And life is the reward, so let nothing hold you back. Now this reality is a great comfort to those of us who are found in Christ. But it is a great terror and aggravation to those who are without. 
make no mistake, they're not going to always be readily happy to hear what you have to say. But that doesn't mean you don't say it. I want to leave you with a quote from John Flavel, one of my favorite Puritan writers. He says this, Can you be safe too soon? Can you be happy too soon? Certainly, you cannot be out of danger of hell too soon. And therefore, why should not your closing with Christ upon his terms be your very next work? If the main business of every man's life is to flee from the wrath to come, and it is, and to flee for refuge to Jesus Christ, and it is, then all delays are highly dangerous. The manslayer, when fleeing to the city of refuge before the avenger of blood, did not think he could reach the city too soon. Set your reason to work upon this matter. Put the case as it really is. I am fleeing from the wrath to come. The justice of God and the curses of the law are closely pursuing me. Is it reasonable then that I should sit down on the way to gather flowers or play with trifles? For such is every other concern in this world compared with our soul's salvation. There's urgency there. There's urgency in all that we do. And we must be careful not to simply waste our time playing games and fiddling with toys. Let's pray. God, I ask that you give to us grace and wisdom, that you give us an earnest desire, Lord, to pursue you at the sacrifice of all other things. God, forgive me for the failings of my own life. Forgive us all for the casual manner in which we have treated this. And let us understand, God, that nothing matters apart from this. Let us understand that the pursuit of Christ is the only thing that takes the highest priority. God, let us chase hard after you all the days that you grant us life, that we might rest with you in all the days that you give us in eternity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.